It's been 14 years since the last major U.S. aviation accident. We're going to be talking about Colgan 3407 on this episode of Taking Off. Hello and welcome to our new podcast on Taking Off. I'm Dan Milliken. And I'm Christy Wong. And I am digging that super serious music. Yes, super serious music. (laughs) Well, we are talking about a super serious topic. It is the last big airline accident in the United States. Involving passengers. Involving passengers. 2009, so 14 years ago from where we sit here today. God, are you that old? I'm 14. (laughs) Now, 14 years since this accident... And um, it was a pretty significant one, not necessarily one of the biggest number of fatalities or anything like that, but it certainly had a, a lasting impact on U.S. Aviation 121 oh, operations. Oh, it affected everybody, including me. Yeah. So, um, and, and just for the non-pilots out there, when we say 121, what we're referring to, Chrissy, what are we referring to? 121 is the, it's the major airlines that carry passengers or cargo. So when you think, when typically when people say, oh, commercial airline pilot, that's a 121 carrier pilot. That includes FedEx, UPS, um, and then, of course, all the major passenger carriers. Okay, so, and and they operate under a, a, a set of rules that the FAA is designated, and the, the rules are, are the Part 121 rules of right. the FAA. So that's when we shorthand say 121, we're referring to the airline passenger major cargo kind of stuff. Right, and then just to kind of branch off of that, when we talk about private aviation, so like when you fly Lola or I fly the Warrior, those are Part 91 rules. Part 91. So when we say we fly Part 91, that's what we mean, versus Part 121 is the the airline rules. And just to confuse everybody a little bit more, then if you're just like flying, um, maybe it's a a smaller uh, jet for businesses and things like that, that's under Part 135. Sort of. Sort of. So I flew business jets, but under one ninety one. I well part ninety one. Yeah, yeah, part ninety one. But if you fly for a carrier, one thirty five is kind of in between. Right. It's in between ninety one and one twenty one. So, but we'll we'll leave those guys out. We're, yeah. we're just going to stick to the one twenty one today. All right. So the the last major one twenty one accident uh, involving we, passengers involving passengers was Colgan Air Flight thirty four zero seven, which was a continental um, uh, regional. And uh, and they were flying from Newark to Buffalo, New York, and things went wrong. Do you, t- tell, first off, tell us who was flying the plane. So there were, of course, two pilots. There was a captain and first officer. Um, the captain, his name was, I think, Marvin Renshaw, mm-hmm. or no. It it, was, Renshaw is correct. R- was it Renshaw? Okay. Yeah. Well, because the first officer, I know her name was Rebecca Shaw. And um, I think about her a lot sometimes because she was 24 years old. Renslow, that's what it was. See, I knew. I knew I was off off there. Uh, Rebecca was a 24-year-old first officer that was up and coming in the, you know, regional pilot system trying to make her way to the majors. And it reminds me of me. She is basically who I wanted to be at that time. Right. And, And now let's talk about the plane. Yeah, so the airplane was a a Q400. It was a turboprop airplane, kind of a high wing, you know, but turboprop. It wasn't a jet, but it had the turboprop engines. 
Are those referred to as the dash eights? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's dash eight. So the same plane that um, that guy out of Seattle, Rich. Um, oh gosh, yeah, mm-hmm. he took for a joyride. Yeah, he took for a joyride. Oh, um, at least he only took out one person himself. Um, okay, but in this case, same plane, uh, the dash eight. Um, and uh, we talked about the pilots. We've got the flight. Let's talk. Set up the uh, the weather and the situation. It was garbage weather, honestly. They were getting, uh, you know, it was very cloudy, icing conditions, which are not fun. It's usually turbulent in those kind of conditions and stuff. And I know they had a long work day, and what made it it would exacerbated their situation was they had long commutes as well. Right. So uh, they're flying out of Newark and like. Um, Renslow lived in Florida. Right. And Rebecca Shaw lived in Seattle. It was very, uh, I don't want to say uncommon, but they were based in Newark, which was very expensive to live. So you have to get some context behind it. The right. regional pilots then are not. Well, and I was going to talk about today. that because regional, when, when I got my private pilot seven years ago, um, you were going to be lucky to get a job in the mid 20s at a regional. And that was seven years yeah, ago. Yeah, 20s to 30s, about yeah. seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now back you guys then, are can make six figures. Yes, this is true. But back then, so a lot of people, I, I mean, I've said it before on the show, I actually got my first Discovery flight and looked into becoming an airline pilot in the mid-2000s. So around this time. Or Yeah, it was actually just a couple of years before this happened. And it was not great. It was going to cost me $40,000 just to go to flight school to get the ratings. And then um, from there, you had to get a job if you were lucky making like $8 an hour as a CFI. I'm not joking, like eight, maybe $10 an hour as a CFI. It wasn't, it was, the, it's just so, so completely different. Um, my friend Heather, I've talked about her a lot. She was in this era as well, like growing up as a pilot. She had to flight instruct for over 2,000 hours before the regionals would even look at her, the regionals. And now, you know, as a CFI, you hit 1,499 hours and you are gone Okay. to the, to the regionals. So that, that's the environment of the regionals, which is really interesting about the captain, Rinslow. So he lived in Florida. He was 47 years old. He actually only had like 33, 3,400 hours total. Wasn't it, this his second career? It had to have been because I looked and he got his private in 91. Okay. He got his commercial in like 2001. Okay. So, and and then he only has this amount of hours. So he had, by the time he, he, he got the job at Colgan, um, he had, I don't remember. It was like 4,000 hours, right? Or 3,000 hours? He had three, he had, he had 3,000. Let's see. He had accumulated um, 3,379 hours total by the time of this accident. So when he got hired, he got hired for under 800 hours. Oh, I'm sure. So, I mean, you, you talked, you know, so like you talked about, you know, that, that your friend Heather had to fly as an instructor for 2,000 hours. Because it was competitive. Right. It's different. So you technically could have gotten hired with as low as 250 hours. You needed a commercial multi-engine rating, you know, with the instrument. And you could technically be hired by the regionals as a first officer, which means if you had 250 hours at that time, you know, like I said, but it was so competitive. It was very competitive, which drove down wages. 
So Rebecca Shaw, going back to kind of the conditions and stuff, Rebecca was making $16,000 a year. That's it. She couldn't afford to live in Newark. And neither could a lot of those pilots. Well, Most of those pilots that were based in Newark lived outside of Newark. Well, Rinslow, um, I know that in researching it, so he would, he was hoping to get a crash pad in Rinslow, I mean in uh, Newark that he could share with other pilots, but he hadn't gotten to that point yet. And what looks like was happening is he was sleeping in the ready room they all at were. Newark. They yeah. all were. So Rebecca had a double leg commute, I think on FedEx or something, to get to Newark. And then she slept in the crew room overnight. Which has no bed. No, it's just chairs. And no, TV and the crew room the crew room for us, all the crew rooms that I've been in at all of our bases, it's like a bunch of chairs. Now there is a quiet room. They actually do have a quiet room now for us that you could go take a nap in, but it's not for like overnight stays. It's like It's not for deep sleep. No, no. You're it's like you get a two hour nap in or something like that. You know, if you're if you if you need to get rested or you just need to close your eyes or whatever. But normally, no, like I don't even know if they had that. I can't speak on whether or not they had a, a quiet room. I know they had a bunch of chairs, maybe not even as good as like the one you have here in the corner. Yeah. So they weren't um, they weren't getting rest. Um, and he, they I know Renslow, the captain, was on a three day. This was the third day of his flying and he had flown um previous two days with a different FO. Right. And I think she was also either catching a cold or just getting over a cold. She talked a lot on the CVR about being um, tired. She talked like, I think she said, she had mentioned several times on the CVR about how she was tired and stuff like that. And you could hear sniffling and um, using tissues and things like that. Which brings up, you bring up the CVR. Um, One of the things in the NTSB findings was that the NTSB pointed to there not being a sterile cockpit, that there was a lot of, of other chatter. Even I think they even used the word flirting. Uh, I can't say that they I, – I didn't see necessarily that they were flirting. I do know that they were, they were chatting. They were chatting for sure. Yeah, so I read through the transcription and, and, and read what they were saying. They talked some about um, – uh, you know, I know that uh, Renslow mentioned uh, how he got came on to Colgan, um, that um, Shaw talked about uh, some of the stuff career-wise that she was trying to do and where she was wanting to go. Right. So, she was definitely an aspiring, like, mainline pilot. So, okay. Now, we, we get to that point. Let's do this. Let's um, just take a listen a little bit to her voice. This isn't the CVR. This is actually the ATC um, recording, so it's just what's going on over the air. But let's listen to um, Rebecca. She was on. Um, she was the pilot communicating. Right. She was the pilot monitoring that night. Pilot he was monitoring. the pilot flying. So here's here's Rebecca.
3407, approach. Kogan 3407, And that's it. That was the last we heard from Kogan 3407. So I can't tell if she has a cold or anything, but... I mean, it sounds like she might be a little nasally, like, you know, maybe it's a little stuffy, but... Um... Okay, as I understand it, they even though the weather was not good, uh, snow, ice, and they, they talked about on the CVR that they had never seen that level of ice buildup on their plane. Right. So, which um, is interesting, but um, the NTSB did not make a big deal of, uh, about the icing. No. So... They um, they had bad weather, but they were still in visual conditions, correct? I think so. Yeah. Um, I know that they, they were cleared. Eh, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to look at that. And if anybody out there wants to, um, I'll, I'll, I'll look at that while we're talking. But the uh, take us through kind of the approach. So they were coming in. They had ice built up. Now, when I'm playing the 175, I mean, I've flown in pretty moderate icing. I had an actually an occurrence a couple weeks ago go up north during that snowstorm, that ice storm, actually. There was a lot of ice, but we use what's called ice speeds, which is where we increase our approach speeds. And it doesn't sound like they did this with the, you know, uh, with their approach. They just got slower and slower. When you put the gear down, it's it creates a lot of drag on the airplane and you slow it down. In fact, when you see the airplanes coming in, right, the airliners, and you notice that their gear comes down really early, a lot of times we do that because we're trying to slow down the airplane. You know, approach has us going 250 knots, and then they're like, hey, slow to 170. We got to get slowed really quickly. We put the gear down so that we it slows it down. And that's what happened. They put the gear down. It slowed it down. I don't think he made enough input to increase the speed. As they got closer to the stall, they got the stick shaker. And that's not telling you that you are stalling. That's telling you you're about to stall. So take evasive action. And the action that he took was not evasive. It was actually the opposite. opposite. He did the opposite thing. So when you get close to a stall, in order to keep the airplane from stalling, you have to push over. Okay, so real quick, just for those who maybe aren't pilots, let's talk about the definition of a stall in the in the the aerodynamics of what's going on in the critical angle of attack. In layman's terms, it's the loss of lift for the wing. You need a certain amount of air going underneath the wing, you know, creating lift. And when you lose that lift, it creates a stall. So the airplane, there are characteristics that the airplane will make that uh, are kind of hints, right? Because I don't have a stick shaker in the Warrior, but I know when I'm approaching a stall. Um, I do have a stall warning horn, which is the same thing. It doesn't tell me that I'm in a stall. It tells me that I'm approaching a stall. I'm getting to that critical angle of attack where the air can no longer go over the wing. Um, But also, it'll create this buffet. You'll get this little bit of a buffet because now the air is getting disrupted over the wings. Um, In this case, they also had a third thing, which was the stick shaker. So we have stick shakers in, in the airliners, or at least in my airplane we do, that it'll actually rattle and tell you, hey, you're approaching a stall. You need to gain some more airspeed over the wings. And and you can gain airspeed over the wings by either increasing your your thrust or by dropping the nose so that you pick up speed. Right. If you nose over, you know, you pitch for airspeed, right? So if you pitch over, you can get that. He did not do that. So he did the opposite. So when when he started the stall, 
He pulled back. He pulled back, which exacerbated the stall. It further decreased the amount of air going over the wing. And then one more level of don't do this set in, uh, automated into this airplane, was a feature where you could, the, the stick actually forces itself down. A stick pusher. Stick pusher. Yeah. And he overrode that. He overrode the stick pusher and continued to pull back on it. And then further complicating things, Rebecca put the flaps up. Without being told. Right. She got scared and figured she needed to do that. And that that's basically what, it was this chain of events. They literally did the exact opposite. When you're in a stall like that, with the flaps out, it actually allowed the airplane to fly slower in a slower configuration by putting the flaps up. It means that you needed to fly faster, which they were already not doing. So it was just a combination of all those things. And when you lose lift like that and the airplane goes into a stall, it goes into a spin. So this airplane literally spun and they were already so low to the ground. There was no recovery. No time to recover. There was no recovering it. And so they crashed. They ended up crashing into a house where a family was. And um, I know that the, I think the father was killed, but the other two, the wife and the child survived. Yeah. All, all around, it was a serious tragedy, but it changed aviation in America. Okay. So 49 people on board the plane, one person on the ground, 50 people died. What was the outcome of this crash? There were actually several things that were enacted. We got very strict part 117 rules, which dictate rest rules for us now. So and when you say us, who are you referring to? Pilots. 121 pilots. 121 pilots. Yeah, 121 pilots. So basically what that said was before, the they the rule was eight hours from the time your flight ended until you had to be at your next flight. That's not a lot of time. I could tell you, I mean, it takes time. An hour or two just to get to a place where you can go to sleep. Yeah, exactly. You get off the airplane, get everything wrapped up, get on the hotel van, get to the hotel, take a shower, and then finally lay down for bed. And then you've got to get up at least two hours before your next flight. I mean, we're talking maybe, you know, six hours of sleep, maybe, if you're lucky. And so um, what this did was now there's a 10-hour minimum rest period, which gives you – we have to have the opportunity for eight hours of rest. If we don't get to the hotel in time, let's say there's a delay with the hotel van or anything like that, we're protected now. We call crew scheduling. We let them know hey, we have not been given an opportunity for eight hours of rest, so they have to delay us the next morning. I see. And do you think, in your opinion, was fatigue the reason why um, Rinslow did the opposite of what he'd been trained to do? I think it was definitely a factor. It was a big factor, in my opinion. Um, and it was a factor in, with Rebecca Shaw as well. They were both fatigued. I mean, there's well, no doubt about that. Also, when you look, I don't know if you looked at uh, Rinslow's um, background, he had four failed check rides. He did, yeah. So I was going to say uh, another factor would be the type of training, the quality of training he had, um, and whether how well he did through his training. I know that he had several failures in his past that he did not disclose to Colgan. Yeah, so Colgan knew of two of them. Right. And then in the consequential investigation, they were able to find out that he actually had four. Now, they were one was back when he was originally getting his instrument rating back in the early 90s. So he failed his first instrument check ride. And didn't he fail 
like his captain training at Colgan or something initially? Yes. Yeah. Well, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was something having to do with transition training on the Saab. He okay. was flying the Saab. Got it. Got it. And, um, and when you go through it, there was a laundry list on every failing. It wasn't like one thing. He missed his altitude on his, because like his commercial check ride, I think he, he, he had to retake that as well. Right. And it, and I, and, and I don't know, CFI initial. I know that he had to retake that. You know, and I mean, a lot. there's a lot of people but, that right, that so, happens with. So you kind of look at that. You take it with a grain of salt and you go, okay. But then you get the situation where he uh, had to retake some stuff. Um, and I don't know at the Colgan level, the regional level, when when you, you fail something in the simulators there, how serious or, or not that is. Because, in, you know, a lot of people fail a, a check ride getting their commercial ticket or getting their instrument or getting their CFI initial. A lot of people do. That's To me, that's not yeah, that that's big of a Yeah, that's considered like primary training effectively yeah, so once I'm, you get to that level. You know, we're, um, it, so to me, that's not as unusual. Uh, I just don't know about the uh, the checkride fails when he was at Colgan. 121 checkride fails are a big deal. At least now they are. I don't know how serious they were back then. I can imagine that they were just as serious. Because you got to remember, back then, pil- I mean, I hate to say it, pilots were a dime a dozen. You know, people were furloughed for like 10 or 11 years because they just weren't hiring anybody. It was such a competitive market. Which leads me to my opinion now about another big change that was made. All right. 1,500-hour rule. All right. The 1,500-hour rule. So um, Renslow came, um, got hired by a regional 121 with – like 700-ish hours, Rebecca Shaw got hired without an ATP. Right. She had felt because you have to have 1,500 hours. I mean, he would have been hired without an ATP as well. You have to have 1,500 hours. Oh, to get your ATP. To get your ATP, yes. Even back then. Even back then, yeah. Oh, okay. But so, but so, And what the rule did was it made it so that you have to have an ATP before you can join an airline. That's a, so that was the rule. The rule wasn't 1,500 hours that you had to have to get an ATP. ATP. It was that you had to have an ATP before you sit in the cockpit. Yes, correct. Okay. okay. But but with that, they call it the 1,500-hour rule because typically you have to have that. There are some exceptions. You can get a restricted ATP under certain conditions. Like if you're prior military, you can be eligible for a restricted ATP at like 750. If you go to a four-year university and you get – an aviation degree from that university, you can get a restricted ATP at a thousand hours, and if you go to a two-year college, you can get a restricted ATP at twelve fifty. So there are some exceptions, but the majority of people that do it. So I was not—I never got a restricted. I had to meet the fifteen hundred hours before I could get my ATP. You have to get your ATP before you go to the airlines now. With the pilot shortage of today, I hear a lot of noise about people wanting that restriction lowered again. What are your thoughts? I do not agree with that. I absolutely do not agree with that. It is because of the 1,500-hour rule that allowed the conditions for us now. Okay, they're talking— Okay, but hang on. So you want to see the 1,500 hours, but the problem is 1,200 of those hours are in a Cessna 172. Right. Well, okay, and that well, that's a little bit of a different situation because, like, your 1,000 hours and my 1,000 hours could be completely different. But it's, right. But it's the same in the airlines, honestly. Okay, I went to Recurrent this last year, and they, you know, they ask, they're like, oh, how many people have 
done a diversion? How many people have ha declared an emergency? How many people have been put in holding? You know, and a lot of people don't raise their hand. I was able to raise my hand for all of that because I've actually experienced all of that within the airline. And I experienced all of that during my corporate flying days. But, and, and yeah, I had, I feel like I got good quality hours building up to that 1500 hours. But either way, the, the whole premise behind it is that you get the basic aeronautical skill set ingrained in you. That's, that's the whole, the whole thing. Muscle behind memory. It. Right, exactly. Because it doesn't matter if you're in a triple seven or a one, it doesn't matter if you're in a 172 or a 175. If you do this and the airplane stalls, you need to do this, you know, at the end of the day. So the whole mindset behind it is you, to get the, the skill set, the stick and rudder skills and whatnot. Um, in fact, that's one of the complaints about aviation in Europe. Remember when we went to Scotland? Mm -hmm. They actually said, you um, remember the when we went and we did the gyrocopters mm -hmm. and stuff? Those guys said, America does it right. The 1,500 hours, America does it right. Even though they're out there flying, you know, whatever they can to get to the 1,500, right? Just like us. Or get to, you know, they're flying what, what they can to get to their, their minimums. They said America does it right. Because you look at cases like Air France 447 where they literally lost basic airmanship and stalled that airplane into the ground. There is no— From 40,000 feet. From 40,000 feet. <laughs> when all he had to do was do Level, this. <laughs> yeah. All he had—no, I mean, just push the nose forward. Go three degrees down. You know, a degree or two down just to make sure that you've got adequate airflow over the wings when you have unreliable airspeed. He lost basic airmanship. And so that's the whole premise behind it. The other thing it did, though, was it created an environment where pilots are no longer a dime a dozen. They can't get away with paying us $16,000 a year now. Oh, that's a good point. I had not thought of it. Did you know that in old pilot contracts back then, they had written into their contract that you were not allowed to file for food stamps while wearing your work uniform. <laughs> How is that okay? <laughs> you know, it costs a gazillion dollars to become a pilot, and now you're going to pay me way less than what it cost, like less than what is a livable wage to fly people? Which is unfortunately what happened to Renslow and Shaw. Exactly. And so when people complain about the 1,500 hours, think about what you're complaining. You're asking for let like worse working conditions when you finally do get to the airlines. Interesting. Had not thought of it from that point of view. I am grateful for the 1500 hour rule at this point because, because I, it means that I'm a commodity. Well, but going up when you're at 900, a thousand, uh, did you wish it was less? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I was like, why? Well, I don't understand. I got all this time. I don't get, you know, but but honestly, but I have that's because I didn't have perspective to see the bigger picture. And now I do. Once I got that perspective, it literally changed my entire outlook on the situation. So yeah, it's gonna cost time and money and effort to get there. But once you get there, it's worth it. All right. The fifteen hundred hour rule came out of the Colgan crash. Um, some of the victims uh, that were on that plane, um, there was um, one woman that was a human rights investigator for the Rwanda genocide. Um, Beverly Eckert, who had become the co-chair of the 9-11 Family Steering Committee after her husband was killed in oh, the 9-11. That is some final destination stuff right there. Yeah. That is full circle. Um, she was en route to Buffalo to celebrate her husband's 50, what would have been his 58th birthday and award a scholarship in his memory. 
um, a couple of famous jazz musicians were on there. And um, so, you know, it, it had a lot of impact. Of course, the other, you know, 46 people all, oh, it absolutely, yeah. it impacted, you know, 46 plus families, plus the, you know, pilots, I mean, plus the people on the ground. I mean, when things like this happen, it's a ripple effect, you know, and it, it impacts a lot of people. They were very, very squeaky, though. They were the squeaky wheels, you know, that got the grease because they were very vocal about making changes. Um, and honestly, I have to thank them because because of their efforts, they changed the environment in which regional pilots are treated. We are no longer treated that way anymore. You can ask any former regional pilot from the 80s and 90s what it was like. They they look at the regionals now and it is unrecognizable compared to the conditions they flew in. So my friend Heather, you know, her and I were talking about it. And yeah, she she was telling me horror stories about the way that they were treated back when she was a regional pilot, you know? But that's just what you did. And if you didn't do it, they'd find somebody like that off the street who would. All right. So the conclusions from the NTSB. The pilot's performance was likely impaired because of fatigue. But the extent of their impairment and the degree to which it contributed to the performance deficiencies that occurred during the flight cannot be conclusively determined. All right. There's, there's the one on the fatigue. The current air carrier approach to stall training did not fully prepare the flight crew for an unexpected stall in the Q400 and did not address the actions that were needed to recover from a fully developed stall. Well, that is definitely something that came out of it as well. Is, is now, more training? Well, we have our AQP training now. So when something like this happens, we, we actually practice that. We do stall training now. Um, in that capacity, when we go to recurrent, when we have our initial training, whereas before they did basic steep turn slow flight stalls, you know, et cetera, ours are very situational now. Hey, you're, you're doing this, you're on an approach, you're 40,000 feet up, you get flipped over by wake turbulence from an A380, recover. All right. And then the, finally, here's the big um, NTSB's probable cost statement. The captain's inappropriate response to the activation of the stick shaker, which led to an aerodynamic stall from which the airplane did not recover. Contributing to the accident were, number one, the flight crew's failure to monitor airspeed in relation to the rising position of the low-speed queue. Number two, the flight crew's failure to adhere to sterile cockpit procedures. Number three, the captain's failure to effectively manage the flight. And four, Colgan Air's inadequate procedures for airspeed selection and management during approaches in icy conditions. It was an industry-wide problem, though. I mean, it's, yeah. it's easy to say Colgan and demonize them, but it, honestly, it, it, it was, was everybody. Yeah, it was everybody. And a lot of, ch and a lot of changes happened, and... Um, we're better today, of course, for it. Thank goodness. Unfortunately, this is one of those cases where, like, the lessons and the new regulations and stuff are written in blood. A lot of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, thank you guys for listening. Um, we're in the early days of our podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, you can check out our channel on YouTube, youtube.com slash taking off, all one word. So uh, thank you guys very much for being a part of our new podcast. Cue the dramatic music. <laughs>